0: Aliens and flying saucers This is all an illusion Hey, welcome to the 41st episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today we're going to do something I've wanted to hit for a long time, namely criticism. Alan Seppenwald is America's most highly regarded and respected tellers and critic. His writing for UpRocks isn't merely smart. It's a pretty groundbreaking approach to looking and reviewing and explaining the medium. So today I'm getting critical in my efforts to learn how one watches a TV show or a movie or even a sporting event and breaks it down. It's really interesting stuff. And it's right now on two writers, Slinging Yang. Okay. So Alan, first of all, uh, thank you for doing this. You are, um, you're making history today. You're the 41st episode, but you're the first reviewer of any sort, the first sort of critic. <laughs> So expectations are high. Expectations are very high.
1: My my goal is to come in just under them.
0: Right. Well, I believe you can do that if you work hard enough. Um, I, I'm going to so try. Here, I was thinking, when I started my career, I started my career at the Nashville Tennessean, and I started as a music writer. One of the things I did was I wrote music reviews. So I'd review CDs and review concerts, and I had no idea what I was doing. And the reviews would end up being like, a couple of highlights of the songs, analyze some lyrics, um, maybe a paragraph about the crowd, and that'd be it. And you can basically cut and paste sort of my criticism. And, and I think probably 90% of critics out there did exactly the same thing. You have a completely, completely different approach to looking at sort of television and the makeup of television. How do you look at this? Like how do you approach TV criticism and pre- TV analysis?
1: Well, it depends because I do several different kinds of things and have bounced back and forth between all of them over the course of my career. Uh, you know, there's obviously the traditional review, which is here is a new show. It's debuting tonight. This is what I thought of it. Here is why it might be worth your time or why you should steer clear of it. Then there's what's come to be known as the recaps where I'm doing analysis of an episode of TV written for an audience that has already seen that episode and there I'm digging in very deep to sort of what it meant as opposed to just sort of rehashing what happened in it um and looking at what worked and what didn't you know then I do interviews with showrunners I do features and things like that and it it it's a different way of thinking for each of those you know kinds of writing uh I guess I'm probably best known though for those recaps and those is just you know
0: what I dive in and the the show talks to me and it tells me what it wants me to say about it, I guess. Right, but I'm actually really, the recaps fascinate me because they're kind of your bread and butter. And um, actually a friend of mine, a writer named Michael Lewis, not the Moneyball Michael Lewis, but another Michael Lewis, was like, he was in one about several months ago. He's like, you need to get this guy on your show because he just looks at it differently. And it, I'm fascinated. I'm literally fascinated in the process of you watching a TV show because I, I feel like 90% of us, 99% of us, we turn on the TV, we watch a show, and then we kind of turn the TV off and move on. And I wonder, there's a show you're watching, how are you watching it? Like, what is it like for you to watch a TV show? Uh,
1: again, it depends on whether or not I'm intending to write about it. If, if I'm you're writing watching about a, it. Okay, if I'm writing about it and I intend to seriously write about it, what I do is, you know, the, I've described it in the past, it sounds insane, but it works for me, which is I'm a very fast typist. I have my laptop out, I'm looking up at the screen, I'm watching the show, and as each scene is unfolding, I am essentially transcribing what is happening in the scene. You know, maybe not word for word, but, you know, this this character goes over here, he does this, he says this, he does this, and as I'm sort of transcribing the action, I'm also writing down my reactions to things, and those go in all caps of, oh, wow, that was impressive, or oh, my God, I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen, or I'm predicting this is going to happen, or whatever, so it's sort of a beat-by-beat, moment-by-moment chronicle of what it was like for me watching the show, so that when it's time for me to write about it later on, whether that's later that day or years from now, you know, I was able to use the notes for Breaking Bad when I wrote my Breaking Bad book that I'd written about a decade in the past, and it was like I was watching the episode again. I can just go in there and see what I thought and dig it out and, you know, write from there.
0: Is there a lot of uh, pause, rewind, pause, rewind. What did he say? Get the wording right. Is that what I thought he was saying? Am I interpreting that correctly?
1: Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I'm usually pretty good at it. It's mainly like if I'm worried that I missed something or like you say, if I want to get the phrasing exactly right. But in a lot of those cases, I'll go back and I'll do it after the fact because I don't want to disrupt the flow. I try to watch things straight through when I can and life gets in the way. And But that's one of the neat things about technology is you can pause things if you have to.
0: Right, so what are you, are you, are you seeking out deeper meaning in a TV show? You know, are you, is there a base level of enjoyment that you are digging past? Uh, you know, in the way most of us are just looking for a base level of enjoyment of TV. It
1: varies. You know, I wrote a review today of a show called Timeless, which is this NBC time travel show. It's not very deep, but I enjoy it. And so I wrote about some of the things I enjoyed about it and I didn't have to dig any deeper than that. You know, I just finished writing a book about The Sopranos that's going to come out next year. And that's one where I'm digging very deep into the meaning of every moment and every scene. Um, so it really it. I don't try to expect something to be something that it's not. It's if this show is meant just to entertain me, I'm going to judge it on whether it succeeds at that. If this show's aspiring to something more,
0: I will try to meet it at its level. That's really interesting. Um, do you get tired of TV? Is that a dumb question? Are you ever just like, uh, I, really I get don't tired of it?
1: things that aren't very good. Um, we've been through a weird stretch right now, you know, from the start of the year up until about a week ago, where there either wasn't a lot on or there wasn't a lot on that was good. In part because everyone was saving stuff for after the Olympics or saving things for March and April, which has become to TV what Oscar season in December is to the movies. So there was a lot of stuff premiering, but most of it was pretty boring. And so I'm going through one show after another and like, here's a comedy that isn't very funny. Here's, you know, a wire imitator or a Breaking Bad imitator that's not nearly as good as it wants to be. Uh, And then you're just sort of sit there and watching it. But the good stuff, I still love watching that. And it's still exciting to be
0: able to write about it. But I'm really fascinated by this. You all right? So it's a new season. New shows are coming out. Like, how do you is, is your philosophy? I'm going to give everything a chance. I mean, I don't even know if that's humanly possible. Like, how do you actually decide what you're going to do? It's no
1: longer humanly possible. I've been doing this since 1996. Back then it was. You could watch everything, you know, and certainly everything that was scripted. But these days, there's like 400 plus, close to 500 scripted comedies and dramas that debuted in the year 2017. Even if I did nothing else but try to watch them all, I would not get to them all. It's just not physically possible. So So how are you you determining? Uh a little bit of intuition, a little bit of trial and error. It's what is the show? What's it about? Who's making it? What's, what network or streaming service is it on? You know, does it interest me? Do I think my audience would be interested in it, et cetera? And sometimes I'll put something on and I'll watch it for 15 minutes and it's clearly not for me. And I'll just stop because I know I'm not going to write about it.
0: So it doesn't matter. Interesting. Are you, you know, I I, I always think back, I think a lot I've mainly written sports in my life, and I always think of sports in in relation to movies where there are some teams that start a season and you just know they're going to be bad. So making fun of them isn't really enjoyable. And I always equate that. I remember when the movie Godzilla came out. And you just knew Godzilla wasn't going to be a good movie, so it wouldn't even be fun to review Godzilla because you know it's going to suck. You know, like, where's the fun in that? You know it's bad. It's supposed to be bad. It's just a moneymaker. Are there TV shows that just exist? and? there's sort of an acknowledgement that they're not going to be good. And therefore it's a waste of your time to review.
1: Yeah. I mean, it used to, when I was younger, you know, every young critic will tell you this, you know, older critic will tell you that when they're younger, they really enjoy writing a pan of something. It's just fun to rip into something that's terrible. And these days I don't really have a lot of appetite for it unless it's something that's like offensive in some way or is sort of, it. it it gets a little bit too big for its britches. It thinks it's great, and it really is not. Like House of Cards on Netflix, uh, I wrote you know some fairly vicious things about that over its run before the, all the Kevin Spacey stuff happened. Uh, but overall, you know, if if the choice is between me tearing a show to shreds or me championing some little show that people might otherwise not hear about, I, my time is limited. Their TV is unlimited. I'm going to
0: choose the show that I want to point people to. Well, wow, that's actually really interesting, because um there is a thing with youth where you love ripping, right? Yeah. And it does become less fun for some reason, doesn't it?
1: It does, because, like, these are people, and they're doing their jobs, and maybe they're not doing them well. In some cases, maybe they're even doing them in bad faith. But it's just it, – a lot of people worked on this project, and maybe the creator is terrible. Maybe the actor is terrible, but there's a bunch of other people – and, like, I, I could certainly tear it apart, but these days, mostly when I write a negative review, it I try not to come from that mean place. I try to come from the place of this doesn't work and here is why, and here is maybe how it could work if things were a little bit different.
0: Interesting. Are you ever so offended by something, so deeply offended in that TV has become such a huge part of your life and your career and your being um, that it crosses a boundary of just... I don't appreciate this to the point of I am something about this actually wounds me.
1: Uh, every now and then, you know, there was a show called how I met your mother, which was this long running oh. CBS comedy. And I loved it for a long time. And I championed it when it was, you know, sort of the li- the little engine that could. And then it became a huge hit. And then it's ending was just God awful and God awful in a way that I felt was a betrayal of the whole spirit of the thing of the audience of the people who had been watching from the beginning uh and i was really mad and i wrote a whole bunch of things about it and even now when i bring that one up uh in another article or on twitter i can feel the bile rising just a little bit um but it's it's really extreme cases like that you know or a case of like someone has behaved truly awfully you know in real life um but
0: beyond that uh not as much wait i literally have your how i met my your mother review here it's yeah. it's awesome like This is a review Roger Ebert would have gone bananas for, like would have loved, I'm convinced. And you have a line, my anger over this terrible, misconceived, ginormous middle finger to the fan base very, very briefly turned into sympathy for Baze and Thomas because I realized they'd become victims of their own damn cleverness, which is a great little paragraph in a million different ways because it's almost like you realize you're so pissed off over it. And then in a way, you kind of actually almost understand it. In a way, no. Yeah, no, and
1: that's something I wrote that night. Uh, Sometimes, like the best things I do are things I've slaved over for days or weeks or months. But a lot of the time, it turns out I'm a very good instinctive writer. Where it's just that night, I'm up, I'm watching it, I've just seen it. The feelings are raw, the juices are flowing. I'm going to write something, whether it's bad like that or good like a Mad
0: Men episode, which I was usually writing about at 11:30 at night on a Sunday. Right. Um, how do you handle it when I'm sure this happens? I've got to think this happens. You write something like that. Do you, how often do you hear from the creators of the show or someone affiliated from the show? And have, do you ever have, um, actual confrontations with people affiliated with shows?
1: I've had it, certainly. Um, the most sort of public one was this guy, Kurt Sutter, who created Sons of Anarchy and before that wrote for the Shield. When he was on the Shield and in the early days of Sons of Anarchy, we got along very well because I said a lot of positive things about his show. And then at a certain point, I felt Sons of Anarchy was going off the rails, and I started writing more negatively about it, and he took it intensely personally and launched a bunch of very public attacks against me on social media. Um, you know, I've also, I've run into people in person, it's been hostile, you know, one time Aaron Sorkin gave me, uh, like, a look like he probably wanted to punch me in the face for something I'd written about, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. But mostly not. Mostly, you know, I'm on one coast, they're on the other. Even when I go out to LA for different events, I, you know, I, I don't make it a habit of seeking out the people whose work I've panned, but it, it comes up now and then.
0: Right. But do you, do you inevitably, you're going to be writing about people, uh, you know, someone's going to come back with another show later on. Do you, when you approach someone you've written negatively about, are you hesitant uh, are you hesitant to approach them afterward? Are you hesitant? If you call them, do you feel like you need to sort of throw out the, Hey, I know it didn't end well last time sort of thing. Or do you just pretend that never
1: happened? Uh, I, in some cases, I just stop attempting to interview these people. Like Sutter, I think I did one more interview with after things went really bad, mainly because I think FX felt that we should do that for the, you know, the sake of the public. And then after that, we, I just stopped it. But, you know, I interviewed Aaron Sorkin for the newsroom after, you know, things had been fairly unpleasant between us when I was writing about Studio 60. And, you know, I thought it was a fairly cordial conversation. I wound up not liking the newsroom ultimately. And I don't know if I was to encounter him again, how that would go. But, like, I, again, I try not to make it personal. And sometimes in the course of my career, I've probably crossed a line. But I'm very conscious of that, of, like, I'm going to talk about the work and not about the person. And sometimes people are going to take it personally anyway because they think I am my work. But, you know, I can only do what I can do. And if it costs me an interview or it costs me a relationship, so be it. Because if my opinion is not my opinion, if my opinion is in some way couched because I'm trying to preserve a relationship, then there's no point
0: to me doing this. Right. Do you think they know, like I always find it funny when a movie is really shit, like Suicide Squad, just as an example. Do you see Suicide Squad? I did not. Terrible. I have a kid, so I saw it. That's that's my excuse, and uh, I'm sticking by it. And uh, it was horrible. And there's no doubt that Margot Robbie and Will Smith knew that movie was horrible. But of course, contractually, they have to promote it, so they go out and they talk about how much fun they had. It's a great film. Do you feel like TV people involved with TV shows know when it's shit?
1: Sometimes they do, and sometimes they've been fairly candid about it with me. You know, maybe not during, but after the fact. Other times they think it's great and they don't understand why we're, we're saying otherwise, you know, the the best relationships I've tended to have with show creators are ones who can sort of recognize that even if we don't agree, I'm not trying to attack them or, you know, I'm not trying to suck up to them or whatever. This is just
0: what I thought. Right. So how do you, you, um you said, I mean, at the beginning of, the, of this episode, we talked about you, you sort of sit in front of the show, you have your laptop out, uh, you take all these notes so, how do you? What is your process? Then um, you're done watching the show. You have all these notes. You just sit down immediately and hammer out two thousand words. Like, how do you actually do it? Uh, sometimes the idea comes to me right away, and I I'm,
1: I just never get off the couch and I go from note taking to writing. Sometimes I've got to go walk around or listen to music or you know grab a snack or whatever. Uh, it, it honestly varies, and it it varies from show to show. You know, there are the kinds of shows where I'm just going to write about them qualitatively this work this didn't here's why this is a good thing this is a bad thing and then when i'm doing something like a madman i'm really looking for themes to tease out and talk about and you know figure out how each of the subplots in the episode are reflective of that theme you know or something like the leftovers which was my favorite show to write about for the last couple of years i'm just sort of trying to come up with a, a way as creative to write about it as the show itself was
0: um you know to to the best of my ability that seems like a pretty daunting that seems like a daunting task.
1: It can be. And I mean, I'm not I'm not going to pretend that like my leftovers recaps were as good as the show, but I'm just saying I was trying to do something different with each one in the same way that like individual episodes of The Leftovers felt so different from anything else you could see on TV at the time.
0: Before we continue with Two writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm sitting here with my wife, Catherine, who's spent the last two years listening to me talk all about my upcoming book about the USFL. So Catherine, you want to talk about Jim Kelly and the Houston Gamblers? No. Want to talk about Doug Williams and the Oklahoma Outlaws? No. How about Doug Flutie? Flutie Flakes! Boring. Wait, I don't get it. Honestly, I just don't care about this stuff, and I'm sick of it, and it's boring. And hey, what's that you're wearing? This old thing? It's my throwback Sam Mills Philadelphia Stars jersey from 503 Sports. Now that's interesting. Thanks. It's interesting because 503 Sports is all about throwbacks. We're talking USFL. We're talking World Football League. We're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State. Or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a John Reeves Tampa Bay Bandits jersey, well, dreams come true. Merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Jeff Perlman and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. I have your book in front of me, Breaking Bad 101, the complete critical companion of uh, Breaking Bad. And I have probably watched 15 minutes ever of Breaking Bad. (laughs) Sorry, man. I know. I know. And, it's that's
1: uh, uh, okay. There's a lot of TV out there and you're living a life and you got kids and you're covering
0: sports. It's all good. Yeah, Actually, it's so funny. I love that you just said that because the number of people who are like, you never saw, it. you could fill that in for me. You never watched the surprise. You never watched breaking bad. You never watched. It's like you can only watch so much TV, you know, like it's so many hours in a day to sit on the couch and watch TV. Unless you are my wife, my yeah.
1: wife has seen two episodes of breaking bad. And one of those, was because I was in a hospital
0: bed and she was sitting next to me while I watched it. Wait, I have to talk about this. So your book, I I get this book, and I'm honestly thinking, fuck, I don't give a shit about Breaking Bad, and now he wrote this book, and he's going to be on my show. Your intro, I just want to read a paragraph here. The intro is so good. I watched the greatest hour of dramatic television ever made in a hospital bed, heavily dosed with painkillers and IV antibiotics, my wife and mother and stepfather gawking at me like I lost my damn mind for insisting I'm not only watching, but reviewing an episode of TV only hours after I nearly died from a burst appendix. Perfect circumstances, right? Like, first of all, I'm being sincere. You're a fantastic writer, man. Like, just great, (laughs) sharp and can, you really are like a great writer and really pleasurable and enjoyable to read. But second of all, I think you're on crack. Like, you're in the hospital, right? You're like, and you explain to me the need to watch Breaking Bad at that moment.
1: All right. So it was three episodes from the end of the show. And th- like, literally these were the only three episodes in the entire run of breaking bad. I would not have seen in advance because they gave critics, it, you know, DVDs or digital screeners of every episode up until that point. And then they knew they didn't want any others to go out because they were afraid of spoilers. So okay. I had no other way to do it. And like, this is one it had turned out to be one of the big shows of my career in terms of covering Uh, great show, hugely important show. And beyond that, I was just really mad that like, A, my appendix burst and B, it burst because I was sitting in the emergency room for 12 hours while they, you know, the hospital dragged their feet trying to get me to surgery. And I'm like, look, I'm going to watch the show. I'm not going to let this stop me. This is dumb. Oh, you know, I don't need to move anywhere. I can sit in the bed. My arms work. My eyes work. I might be a little loopy because of the drugs. I'm going to watch this and see if I can do it.
0: And I, I mean, I, I truly was reading this thinking, what the hell kind of like, I can't imagine any sporting event I was ever slated to cover where I would have been in your conditions and I would have been like, no, nah, look, I got to I got to do it. This is for I got to do it. Um, does your wife think you're absolutely insane?
1: She does. She was really mad at me that night. And justifiably, <laughs> it was a dumb thing to do. I could have I could have waited a couple days. I mean, as it turned out, like I was in the hospital for almost two weeks because the infection just wouldn't go away, and so I wound up doing another episode from the hospital, and I had to send the nurse out of the room when she was about to change my IV because the episode was on. But that is so um, great. I, I wanted to do it, and I was just—I there is definitely a level of obsessiveness. If you haven't been able to figure that out by now from all the things I've said in this conversation yeah. to what I do and to be able to to do it as as well as I feel like I do, so. I guess in this case, that leads to hey, I almost died today. Let's watch Breaking
0: Bad and write about it. Right. What the hell else am I going to do? What else do I have to do? I'm sitting here, you know, hey.
1: Yeah. And again, it's um, like if, if I had to go to, you know, MSG to watch Muhammad Ali come out of retirement to fight George Foreman or something, I probably wouldn't have been able to pull that off. But the hospital TV
0: had AMC. So what the hell? Right. Um, it seems like you, I mean, this is a stating and obvious. There are certain shows that really do it for you and that you have sort of almost a special relationship with, and clearly Breaking Bad is one of those, um, without stating the obvious, which is it was obviously tremendous TV and, and very gripping. What was it about that show as a guy who writes about TV that really sort of did it for you?
1: Well, it was a couple of things. One, it was different, and it was so different, in fact, that I didn't even really like it that much in the first season, which I talk about a lot in that book, and right. I had to rewrite pretty much all of the season one recaps from scratch because what's available online is just sort of me wrestling with the fact that I don't understand what this show is doing why what is the point here so like I had to adjust myself to its way of thinking and to its pacing and you know in hindsight I often wind up loving those shows the most the wire was that way too but beyond that it's just it, there's a level of craft to it um in the way that it looked in its commitment to character and its commitment to telling the story sort of beat by painful beat yeah, just in a way that had never been done before, that has been imitated a lot of times since, but not nearly as well. Uh, so that I appreciate Breaking Bad even more in hindsight than I think I did while I was watching it. Cause I've seen how difficult it is for all of these imitators. And just like the chronicling Walter White's descent from unhappy school teacher, but reasonably happy, you know, husband and father to, you know, the biggest monster in the history of television.
0: It's extraordinary. Right. Um, you seem particularly angry. So it's so funny. I I was, I was going through all your different reviews and your different, you know, articles and breakdowns. And I was thinking, oh, this guy, he's, he's a, he's a pretty positive guy. You know, like he's, he's a pretty positive guy. And then I get to your, uh, parenthood and the election and the election and parenthood, which just seemed to take you to a truly, truly interesting and sort of, uh, angry place. <laughs> and, it almost like, tell me if I'm wrong here. I'm actually being serious. Like, tell me if I'm wrong here. It seems like to you, it's like these guys make a trust with the viewer. Like, it's almost like a pact with the with the viewer. You're going to watch our show, and every week, um, we're going to give you something sincere. And and we're going to try to be sincere and honest, and we're going to give you sort of our best effort. And it, in, in a way, it kind of struck me like this felt like a violation to you. Like you broke, you broke a barrier, so you broke a wall that you were not supposed to break. No?
1: I, I just remember, and that was a show that I could be frustrated with a lot of the time, even though I loved so much of it. It was a case of like, for a lot of parenthood, it aspires to this level of realism and this focus on the minutia of life and how difficult it is if you have a special needs kid or, you know, if the wife works a lot and the husband isn't or, or all the different issues that everyone was dealing with. And it really dug down deep and got very detailed about everything and tried to create this feeling of, like, this is what it would actually be like. And then they do this utterly disconnected from reality storyline where one of the characters who has no political qualifications whatsoever not only runs for mayor but, like, mounts a plausible campaign to be the mayor. And not not of, like, a small town. It's not, you know, it's not like one of these novelty campaigns. This is Berkeley, California, and she is almost elected mayor. It's really, really (laughs) dumb. Uh, I mean, the show meant well, so I, I guess I could never get that angry at it in a way that I can at some other things, but boy, oh
0: boy, was that not playing to any of its strengths. That's really funny. And was your, was your, was the response on your take on that pretty much a hallelujah? Thank you for saying that.
1: Mostly, yes. That was an interesting show in that because there, it was a big ensemble and there were all these miniature families within the bigger family. People always had their favorites. And so sometimes you would get someone who was a defender of this one character, this one couple who would be annoyed if I was dumping on them. But I don't recall too many defenders of the election
0: storyline. Right. Interesting. You, um, you're big on social media. I mean, you have a big following, you have a big presence. Um, how do you, or maybe you don't, like, how do you, Manage it in, in terms of impacting your writing, um, impacting the way you see things. Uh, do you feel a need to be sort of active on it? Does it ever become sort of overwhelming to you or is it just like an annoying brother who you see once a week? No, it can be very overwhelming.
1: And there's definitely times where I wish that I could have the internet without having social media. You know, I wish yep. I could just. Have it to look things up and that's it. And I'm not allowed to do anything else because, you know, I'm highly distractible, which you wouldn't necessarily think given how much I write, but I am. And so, you know, if, it, you know, if I'm on Twitter, I can go down a hole and not come out for a half an hour, which is not great or be on Facebook or whatever, but it's, it's nice to be able to interact with people. I came to TV criticism in the first place, uh, from Usenet, which was, Yeah, the internet news groups, uh, that were popular in the early to mid 1990s, you know, when I first got online in college. And so I was used to the idea of I grew up, most of the people I knew were not into the stuff I was into in terms of TV. And suddenly here was this virtual community that was, and I could talk to them about Twin Peaks or NYPD Blue or anything else. So to me, this has always been a part of what I do. Um, and it, you know, it's almost like breathing in some way. But it is; it can be a huge time suck, and at times it can be really frustrating because the internet can be really ugly sometimes. Oh, uh,
0: yes. <laughs> That's like understatement of the year right there. Yeah. Um, 14 years ago, you wrote a book, uh, Stop Being a Hater and Learn to Love the OC. <laughs> yes. <laughs> An unauthorized survival guide for living the drama-filled good life in Orange County. Now, first I want to say, I actually live in Orange County, California, Um <laughs> and I... I I saw this, and at first I thought, I I say this with no disrespect, I thought, oh, that's kind of a joke. And then I was like, oh, no, he actually loved the OC. Um, I did. All right, I'm fascinated by two things. Number one, why? And number two, what makes a guy go from, like, yeah, I really like the OC to, I'm going to write a book about the OC?
1: All right, so the book part is is simpler. It's literally... Someone approached my buddy, Matt Zoller sites with whom I've co-written several books and, you know, who I used to work with at the Star-Ledger, and said, sure. hey, like, you know, we need a quick cash-in book about this big fad, the, the OC, can you write it? <laughs> Matt didn't watch the show, and so he said, I think my friend Alan does. They called me up, and I wrote it in about three weeks, and it paid for my washer and dryer, and, you know, for a long time, that was the only book I'd ever written. But right. I liked the show because, you know, at the at the time, I was in my mid to late 20s. I wasn't that far removed from being a teenager I've often I like, you know, teen dramas if they're well done. This was, it had a sense of humor, you know, one of the two main characters was a big comic book nerd. I've always been a big comic book nerd. Uh, you know, I got the references. I liked the the sense of dialogue. At times it could be a little too melodramatic and soapy for me, but it was okay. And I really enjoyed the show back then. Again, sort of looking at it on its level, it was a really well-executed version of what it was trying to be, and what it was trying to be is
0: something I enjoy when it's good. Oh, that's interesting. Um, do you still have the washer and dryer?
1: Uh, it, we moved about a year ago, and the, that washer and dryer are currently under a tarp in our garage. We're we're using the washer and dryer that the previous <laughs> owners left us. But at a certain point, we could have two washers and dryers. You know, we could yeah. be really living it
0: uh, living it up. Man, um, another book you wrote, and, and this really it, I was thinking, about, I keep thinking about this when I was reading your clips. Is you uh, wrote a book in sixteen? It came out in paperback in two thousand sixteen. Um, TV the book. Two experts yes. uh, with Matt picked the greatest American shows of all time. And I was thinking about So you and I are roughly the same age. And I was thinking about when I was growing up and the shows I watched as a kid, uh, Different Strokes, Silver Spoons, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, uh, Starsky and Hutch, Dukes of Hazard. I feel like none of those shows, like if you tried putting those shows on in 2018, people would be like, are you fucking kidding me? We can't put this crap on TV. Like, it seems like t- it almost it feels like the Wonder Years maybe was a turning point in TV to a certain degree. I, it just seems like TV has gotten so much better now that if you were writing if to do a book about the greatest American TV shows of all time, I feel like it'd be like doing the, the hundred biggest football players of all time, and ninety seven of them would be within the last five years. It just seems like TV has gotten so ridiculously good that it's hard to take old TV shows that seriously. So how do you?
1: Um, see, I would disagree with that. That There's a lot of shows. I, I think our top 10 is pretty heavily weighted towards stuff from the 21st century. But overall, there's a lot of old stuff in that top 100 that Matt and I put together. It's not, you know, there's sort of this, this belief that, you know, TV suddenly got good when the Sopranos came on. And that's not really true, because then you're leaving out, obviously, you know, from the comedy realm, you're leaving out Lucy and the Honeymooners and Dick Van Dyke, and all in the family and Cheers and MASH and you know everything else. And even on the drama side, you're leaving out the Twilight Zone, you're leaving out the Rockford Files and Maverick and a lot of other things. And maybe a lot of those things didn't aspire to, you know, the level of scope or moral ambiguity or narrative twistiness or other things that we associate with now. But they were really, really great at what they were doing. Um And, you know, they, they shouldn't be shunted aside just because, you know, th- things now seem a little bit hipper and cooler and you no longer have to apologize for either –
0: Watching TV, or in my case, for being a TV critic. Interesting. So, do you do you have to allow for time periods? Like when you were when you were in your line of work, do you allow for the periods? Does that do you? Does that in a way do you grade on a curve? I, I don't know that I
1: necessarily grade on a curve. I might I might do it with some of the sociological stuff. Like you go back and you watch Lucy. That that in many ways, despite the fact that Lucille Ball herself is one of the most powerful women in the history of television. That's a pretty sexist show, you know, in terms mm-hmm. Lucy is always the butt of the joke, she's always screwing up, Ricky is always there to pick her up and, you know, dust her off and tell her how things should actually be and she always apologizes for her behavior, you know, but like you have to look at that through the lens of this was a TV show being made in the 1950s and, you know, and the actual craft and the jokes and everything else
0: are delightful and that's just, you know, a product of its time. Right? What do you consider what makes without naming names um what makes a bad critic? Like when you see criticism, be it in movies or TV or whatever, what do you consider? What are the hallmarks of bad or poorly thought out or lazy criticism from media? Um,
1: I think it's like you, if you're basically looking at something not for what it is, but for what you want it to be. And, and sometimes I can fall victim to that as well. Like I wish this show was this instead of that, but there. But if you dig a little too deeply into that or you act like you're a little too cool for the thing you're writing about, that's always really dangerous. Some of the worst pieces I read are things where like you can tell the author thinks this thing they're writing about is beneath them. Uh, that's always terrible. And at that point, like just get somebody else to do it.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. And did you, was there a point in your career where you were that guy to a certain degree or no? It's not, not really. I think definitely, if I go back and I
1: read some of the stuff I wrote in college or in my twenties at the Star Ledger, it, it's definitely a little bit meaner and snottier. But I always loved TV. I always did. That's you, you wouldn't do this job as long as I have if you didn't. You know, I've encountered you know critics who are in their fifties, sixties, seventies. They've been doing it a long time, and maybe there's a certain degree of burnout, you know. But like nobody stays in this job because it's a cushy job especially cuz these days it's not a cushy job cuz there's too many TV shows to keep up with. You have to have some degree of affection for the medium and for the stuff you're writing about in order to do it
0: this long. Yeah. Actually, this is such a basic question, but I'm surprised I haven't asked you it. What um what is it about TV you love so much?
1: I just love the amount of time you get to spend with with characters and with stories and see them unfold. Um, you know, you sort of you form these they're not real relationships because they're, they're one way and with fictional people, but like you feel like you get to know a Tony Soprano, a Sam Malone, a Walter White, um, you know, Lucy Ricardo, whatever. And you watch them over years, you say, Oh, yeah, th- this is funny. This is that thing that they do. I enjoy that. Or, Oh no, I can't believe he's going to do that. But I also feel like I've seen that coming, you know, for two years now. And I just wished it wouldn't. There's just the amount of time
0: is really a huge factor in it. Interesting. What do you ever like? I mean, your wife, just because you mentioned your wife. Is your wife ever, is she ever like, seriously, Alan, you have to get away from the TV? Or, Alan, these are not real people. Or, Breaking Bad, he's not actually, you know, a drug dealer. Like, is, do you ever, I, I, maybe that sounds weird, do you ever cross a line, or does your wife or someone ever say, look, man, the, get away from the TV, just a little bit, get away from the she TV?
1: Does, she does sometimes say, like, I'm tired, I'm, I'm a little sick of talking about fictional characters right now, but on the other hand, this morning, you know, while we were still snowed in we watched a screener of the final season of the Americans. And then we spent 20 minutes talking about like why all the characters did what they did. So when she's into the show, she can be the exact same way
0: I can. Right. Oh, interesting. Um, let me ask you a final question. Is there, um, so my wife and I, we were regular watchers of entourage from beginning to end. We watched every episode of the entire series. And I knew a lot of people who thought entourage was the worst show on TV. Uh, that it was just dumb and contrived and stupid and it's just garbage, you know, filler. Um, and I loved it. Is there, is there (laughs) such a thing as good TV and bad TV? Like, is there, is there a factual basis that something is good and something is bad? Can you make the argument at least?
1: I mean, pretty much everything is more of a subjective thing than an objective thing. If you enjoyed Entourage, I'm very happy for you. People should always enjoy the things that they spend time watching it's it's sort of it's disappointing if you don't so I never regret somebody enjoying a show that I don't like uh, you know and I never I'm, I'm never annoyed if somebody doesn't like a show that I do it's okay what you watch is what you watch I think there are certain objective criteria you can look at in terms of like this is really well composed or this is really well structured in terms of the narrative or that dialogue is smart or whatever or this you, you, There's certain actors you can't look at and say, Oh, they're giving a bad performance because they're clearly not. But if right. you enjoyed, if you enjoyed Entourage, then you enjoyed Entourage. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you shouldn't have. Did you hate Entourage? I enjoyed it sometimes. I thought the second season was, was pretty good as sort of, you know, s- summer entertainment. That's the one where Martin Landau first shows up. Uh, and I yep. think Aquaman came out. So it, it had its moments. I thought towards the end, it became. Incredibly lazy. And it was just a show where everything always worked out without anyone having to make any effort for it to work out. (laughs) Um, but you know, it's, you know, it's like, I I always think about the episode where they're trying to get to to the con film festival and the flights keep falling through. And it's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We need to be there. And then all of a sudden Kanye wanders into the airport, you know, and he happens to be going to Europe. It's like, Oh, Kanye, can you take us? Sure. And that solves the problem. It's like, Yeah. And you could almost feel the writers in the room saying, all right, well, we can struggle with this a little more, or we can say Kanye
0: shows up and we can all go to lunch. Right. Let's go to lunch. All right. It's a a two for one day at the bar down the street. Let's go. uh, Let's go have our our beer. Do you you actually, let me ask one more thing. Does that, um? do you feel like you can put yourself in the mind pretty well at this point of the writers? Like, do you feel like when you see a lazy moment like Kanye West showing up at the airport, do you find yourself thinking immediately, these writers just got lazy right there? Do you feel like you understand? TV sometimes, writers. yes.
1: I mean, sometimes you make assumptions like, oh, like, clearly this thing is a network note. And a lot of the times I'm right and people will tell me that after the fact. And sometimes the thing that I thought was clearly forced on them or was a bad choice actually happened for an entirely different reason. But, you know, I, I think I got a pretty good, you know, spider sense at this point. I've been doing this a while.
0: Right. Right. Uh Well, listen, Alan, you've been uh I've I you've. You have made me a fan of TV writing, and that doesn't mean I ever had a problem with TV writing, but I never thought about it that much and then I started reading your stuff and now i uh, I found myself hooked for about three hours today so um i uh, I, I greatly admire your work and I, I really appreciate you doing this. I really appreciate that thank you, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Alan Sepinwall, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Alan on Twitter, at Sepinwall, and read his stuff on uprocks.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on iTunes, on Google Play, and a whole bunch of mediums. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.